Well, hello and welcome to Abundant Life Church. My name is David and I'm the pastor of groups here at ALC. I'm so glad that you are joining us today. Last week was a big week as we celebrated Easter together at all of our campuses in person and online. It was this uh, just beautiful amalgamation of all the ways we've experienced church for the last year, right? Uh, at our Vancouver campus, Sandy, Happy Valley, our online campus. It was so amazing to see. I got to hang out at the Vancouver campus for a while as well as being here at Happy Valley. And I just loved seeing our church family together worshiping and celebrating the life and the resurrection of Jesus. I hope that you were able to join us for that. But this Sunday is kind of a big deal as well as, as we're starting a brand new series that we're gonna be in for a while called Little Stories, Big Picture. And in this series, we're gonna be looking at some stories from the Old Testament, right? Maybe some stories that you heard in Sunday school, maybe you saw in VeggieTales or other kids programming. Maybe you've just heard them a lot because they're talked about a lot. They're pretty famous. We're gonna look at these stories and see how they weave together to make a much larger picture. You see, as, as Christians, we have this interesting relationship with the Old Testament. Oftentimes, it can be so confusing to think of, okay, how do these stories, how do these writings, how does this poetry relate to me and my relationship with Jesus? So often, it feels like we're reading somebody else's family story, and that's because we kind of are. But see, we have a perspective in our current day as followers of Jesus that makes these stories a much larger picture. We get the advantage of seeing them through the lens of Jesus, right? Seeing these pictures not just as, as individual uh, stories, individual narratives with their own meaning. Yes, that's there too. But also there's this grand story, these themes that prepare us and lead us to experience the clearest picture of God, which is Jesus Christ. And so I hope you're able to join us in this series as we weave this picture together through these individual stories. We're gonna get started today with Genesis, the creation account, as well as what's known as the fall of humanity. See, these are, picture, these are stories that we, learn, that we hear together, right? They may be one Sunday school lesson, one message. We read them all as one. Not only did God create, but something went very wrong. And so that's how we're gonna tackle it uh, today. So if you're joining me with your Bible in hand or a device that you have with you, you can join me in Genesis chapters one through three. Don't worry, that's a lot of text, but we're gonna just take kind of a chunk from each chapter as we go along. And if you're taking notes, the title of this message is The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful. The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful. Now, before we get into the text, I wanna acknowledge that when it comes to Genesis, when it comes to the creation account, there's a multitude, a variety of views, of perspectives when it comes to this text. And so wherever you are, whatever view you happen to hold, I just want to affirm that you are welcome here. Now we're wrestling through this together, how we understand the scriptures, how we understand God. And I just ask two things, and you can even say no to these two things. Uh, I, I, I just want you to know this is where I'm coming from. And I would ask that as you listen, you recognize uh, that, that, that I'm, I'm keeping these two things in mind. First, that we recognize that Genesis is scripture that this is a text recognized as authoritative, inspired, true, 
by Jesus himself, by his disciples who witnessed his life, by the church for thousands of years. This is a, a, a text that, that we, as followers of Jesus, show reverence to, right? That we, that we honor, that, we, that it affects our relationship with God. It affects our faith. And more than anything, these three chapters have a profound uh, perspective, give us profound insight into the nature of God, our own nature, and the problem of evil. And these are questions that we just ask as humans, right? Like, who is God? What is that all about? Who am I? What's my purpose? What am, what am I supposed to do with my life? And then why is this world so messed up? These are questions that we bring to the text, and I believe that the text has something to say. Second, I ask that we recognize that Genesis is literature. And what I mean by that is that this isn't a history textbook trying to just recount every fact, every detail of these stories. It's written as a narrative, as a story for a purpose. There's, there's deeper meanings. There's a deeper theme. There's a message intended for the reader. The author had a bigger story in mind. And man, wouldn't that be a great title for a message series? <laughs> but, we, but we recognize that this was written for a purpose. That's what we mean by literature. So this text is scripture. It's also literature. And we're not going to get into the discussion of what's factual, right? What's historical, what's metaphorical, anywhere in between. Because the truth that we're going to bring forth, the truth that this text brings to us are true whether or not you believe these are factual events, right? We just finished this whole series on the parables of Jesus, which we know were not factual events, right? And as Pastor Bob explained a couple weeks ago, whether or not uh, they are, are factual events does not affect whether or not they are true, that the parables of Jesus were just fictional stories, but they include profound truth for us today. So wherever you are, whatever you view about Genesis, I just ask that we are looking together for the truth in this text, the truth in this story, this narrative. Now we have a lot to cover today, so let's go ahead and get into Genesis chapter one, starting in verse one. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, the darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness night. The evening passed, and the morning came, marking the first day. See, even in these early verses, we see the very poetic nature of this creation account, the, this beautiful picture of God present in a formless and empty world, creating by simply speaking things into existence, naming this new creation, naming day, naming night. And what we'll see is that these verses begin a pattern of God's creation that's repeated time and time again. This pattern is, God speaks, right? Let there be light. And then creation just comes into existence. There was light. God names or clarifies the purpose 
of his creation, it says God called the light day. God sees that the creation was good. And then evening passed and morning came and we're on to the next day. And this pattern starts again. We see the pattern for the creation of the land, the sea, the plants. And then we see it for the sun, moon, and stars. And then the sea life and birds. And finally, the creatures of the land and humanity. And there will be a lot more about humans in the next chapter. So first, I'd like to draw our attention to two truths from chapter one. First, every piece of God's creation was made with intentionality and purpose. Not just humans, right? Every piece. We know humans are made in the image of God. There's something special there. But there is intentionality and purpose behind each of these creations. For example, check this out. Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, the days, and the years. Think about how particular that is, how meaningful that is. It shows God's deep care and attention. We're talking about the sun and the moon here, that these have, have a purpose to mark the day and the night and the years and the months and the days. From the very beginning, there is purpose behind this creation. So what is the purpose behind humanity? Let's look in verses 29 and 30. It says, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. We'll see in the next chapter that there is uh, this, this command that, that man, humanity, is to rule over this creation, not to cause this creation to submit to it or, or, or just serve humanity's needs, but to care for, to steward this creation. God has given it all to humanity. So think about that. We have a mission as humans, even alongside our mission as Christians. Right, Jesus gives a, a, a very clear mission to us as well, but here is a mission for humanity to, to care for, to steward the earth. We've given it from the very beginning. I remember when I was a teenager, my youth group went to this huge youth conference. Right, There was thousands and thousands of teenagers, and there were smoke machines and light shows. It was so cool and so big and elaborate. And they had these video announcements that would come on every once in a while to kind of tell us where things were at or, or how this conference was going to go. And, and one of those came up that has just stuck in my mind. I don't think anything else from this conference has stuck in my mind, but this is what I remember, that there was a, an announcement about where to put your garbage. That's pretty important when you have thousands of teenagers around and they're bringing lunches and water bottles and everything that teenagers bring. But they said, hey, there's garbage cans in the east side of the lobby. There's garbage cans here. There's this one central spot for recycling. And so take your water bottles there if you choose to recycle. Or if you've read the Bible and you know the world's going to burn anyway, just toss them anywhere. That was literally what they said in this video announcement. And I know it was intended to be a joke, intended to be humorous. But how often have we heard something like that not in the context of a joke? Right? The world's going to burn anyway. Why take care of it? 
Why worry about the litter? Why worry about pollution? Why worry about any of these kinds of things? Remember this mission from the beginning to care for creation. This good creation that God has created, we are responsible for. And really, truly, we know the end of the story. We may not understand all the details or what this looks like, but one thing we do know is that Revelation doesn't end up in the clouds or somewhere far away. It ends right here on earth, that the world will be restored, the world will be renewed, and it is our job to care for it in the meantime. Second thing to take away from this first chapter is that God sees the created world as good, as good. There's only one part of Genesis where God decided that all of creation wasn't good, and he almost literally flushed it all down the toilet, right? But then he regretted it, promised to never do it again. See, we often get sucked into this idea that the world, the physical world around us is bad or evil, but this isn't what we see in Genesis, We see a world that is created with inherent goodness. And at the end of the chapter, God sees that it is very good. Now we'll also see that this good world becomes broken, becomes wounded. We're gonna talk about that a bit later on. So let's turn the page. Let's go to Genesis chapter two. We're gonna start in verse four says this, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Now, wait a second. Haven't we already read the the story of creation, the account of of creation. There were already plants. There was already water. There were already people. So what is chapter two talking about? You see, in this chapter, we find a retelling of creation, and it is a bit different than the first one. This time, we're focusing almost completely on humanity. Everything else is kind of fast-forwarded. We're really looking at humanity and God's relationship with humanity. Now, this account doesn't follow that pattern of creation we saw in chapter one. In fact, it describes the creation of humanity entirely distinct from the rest of creation. Check this out in in verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. See, rather than simply speaking humanity into existence, God takes specific care, crafting, forming man from the dust, breathing life into the newly formed body. It's a beautiful, intimate, relational process of creation, completely distinct from everything else. And next we find God creating the the Garden of Eden and it's described as a utopia, flowing rivers, beautiful trees that produced not just fruit, delicious fruit, right? Everything is perfect, right? Not so much, not so much. In the midst of this beauty, the wonders of creation, something is wrong. Something, get this, is not good. 
We just heard this list of everything was good, everything was good, everything was very good. But there's something not good. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I find this absolutely fascinating. Why? Because man wasn't alone. We just saw man had this close, intimate relationship with God. Wasn't that enough? This just perplexes me that, that man had this relationship with God, but, but God still says, ah, oh, but it's not, it's not good. Something is missing. It's not good. And so God tries pairing the man with various creatures and ends up really determining that none of them are a good fit. And so God creates another human. And that, that finally does the trick. In verse 23, at last, the man exclaimed, this one, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. This is someone like me. Church, you and I were not only created for relationship with God, we were also created for relationship with one another. Both are inherent parts of being human. Even with a relationship with God, even with a great relationship with God, if we are not connected with people, something is missing. According to the very words of God, something is not good. Let's keep that in mind. All right, so the problem is fixed now, right? One thing was not good. God finds the solution. It works. Everything is perfect. Now it's all good. What could go wrong? Now we're gonna turn to chapter three, and I'll warn you, this is where it gets pretty weird. There's a talking snake. There's miraculous fruit with incredible powers. There's even a flaming sword whipping back and forth. It's all a bit much, and we get that, and I know that, but stay with me. Well, we know the basic story, right? We know the bones of it, the, the fall of humanity. Uh, some may say the, the original sin. The serpent approaches the woman, Eve, and asks a leading question. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, we typically refer to the snake here as a liar, but I want you to notice that what the snake says here is actually true. The snake says, you won't die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And then we see what happened. Eve didn't die. In verse seven, it says, at that moment, the moment they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. And then in verse 22, then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. 
See, the temptation here has very little to do with lies and false deceptions. It has very little to do with the facts of the situation and everything to do with trust and the definition of good and evil. What is good and what is evil? The author, Karen Swallow Pryor, wrote, I struggled against God. Not as many do, but still I did in my own way. I didn't doubt his being, get this, I doubted his ways. I doubted that his ways were better than my ways. Have you been there? Recognizing, yeah, God, God is, is true, God is there. Maybe even what God says is true, but is his way of going about things really the best way? Or could I figure out a better way? Can I really trust anyone other than myself? In this story, God says, I'm good. He's not questioning the facts there. He's just saying, I'm good. This tree is bad. And I want you to trust me. I want you to care for this relationship by trusting me. And then the snake says, no, 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 no. God is bad. Again, not questioning the facts of the situation, questioning the ways of God. God is bad. This tree is actually good. Trust me. So I want to ask you, who do you trust? Do you trust God? The snake or, or what we might say just other sources around you? Yourself? Maybe it's, it's that you don't trust anyone. And then the question is, who decides what is good and what is evil? In Genesis 3, for the first time, we're presented with a source, this snake that counters God's idea of what is good and what isn't. In chapter 1, everything was good, but who said that? God. God saw that everything was good. God saw that everything was very good. In chapter 2, we learn that there's one thing that isn't good. And who says it isn't good? God. Who fixes it? God. And so we have all this good stuff and a good relationship with God and a good relationship with other people. And then the snake comes in and questions it. God isn't telling you the whole truth. God isn't being good to you. God's keeping something from you. You should be the one to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. And both Adam and Eve agree. And they eat the fruit. And then what happens? Almost immediately, they feel shame. They feel fear. They feel the need to hide their bodies from one another and from God. This utopia of the Garden of Eden comes to an end, not because God sends them out, but because relationships have been damaged. There's an old saying that sin is its own punishment and righteousness is its own reward. See, God didn't do or say anything to cause Adam and Eve to feel this shame, this fear, this isolation. That was a direct result of sin. We often think of sin like a traffic ticket, right? As long as I don't get caught, 
I don't have to face the consequences. Maybe later on, God knows everything and, and I'll be punished for that, right? But it's that whole, if I get caught or, or God's gonna come back and punish me, well, we forget that sin causes its own consequences. When we decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil, we experience the consequences of that decision on our own. What this story is showing us that, is that this desire to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil leads directly to fear, to shame, and ultimately to animosity. What happens when God arrives? Well, first, God seeks out Adam and Eve. Where are you? Then God asks what happened. Adam blames Eve. It was the woman that you gave me. Eve blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me. Everyone except for God in this scene is blaming, turning on one another. And God tells each of them that what was good is now mixed with evil. What was easy will now be difficult. The good is still there, but it is broken. It is wounded. This is the death that God had warned them about when he said, you will surely die. This isn't a physical death like the woman and the snake assumed. This is a spiritual death, even a relational death. And it's the world we live in, right? A world created good. Everything with its own purpose, but now broken. People continuing to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. People sure that, that their values are the values. Their morals are the morals. Every group having another group that they can blame for the problems of this world. And what does that lead to? Fear, shame, animosity, and then more fear, more shame more animosity and this sense of continual isolation from God and from other people. You might be saying, man, this is a real downer, David. This is not the message I was coming here for. I can feel that through the screen here. But it's about to get good. You can trust me. Literally, it's about to get good. I want to point out two lines from Genesis chapter 3 that bring immeasurable hope. The first is a famous line. It's one that you've likely heard before. As God speaks to the serpent in verse 15, we read, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Hear this. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. See, this line, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel is referred to as the proto-evangelium or the first gospel. It's what many view as the first reference to the promised Messiah. This descendant of Eve that will conquer evil and be wounded in the process. Hold on to that. The second line is one that we often glance over. It's in verse 21, it says this. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Before Adam and Eve leave the garden, God clothes them. 
This doesn't seem like a big deal to you and to me, but in ancient Near Eastern cultures, clothing is incredibly significant. And we see that in other places of the Old Testament uh, as well, like, like Joseph and his coat of many colors, right? That, that clothing has a symbolic meaning for status, right? For your belonging in a family. When a child would leave home in shame or would be disinherited, they would be stripped of their clothing. Their clothing would be taken from them. But when they left on good terms, right, on a journey or maybe to start their own household, they would be given clothing and livestock and food. It was this way of saying, you are leaving, but you are still a part of us. We love you and you belong. Notice that God had no issue with Adam and Eve's nakedness before, right? Before that, that fall happened. And there was every reason to say, your shame is your own problem. I didn't think you should feel ashamed in the first place. But instead, God meets them in their shame and their fear. He covers them and then sends them off in a way that communicates, I am still for you and I am still with you. Church, I used to read this story with God as this angry father catching his kids doing something terrible and laying down the law. And maybe that's still where you're at. But I want you to see that in this text, we find a God who deeply cares for Adam and Eve, providing everything for them, including them for one another, right? Searching for them, even when they're hiding, clothing them in their shame, communicating that, that what you are experiencing now is death. Your relationship with me is damaged. Your relationship with each other is damaged, but I am not going to stop pursuing you. This wounded world will be healed. This damaged, broken world will be restored. And you want to know the best news of all? That healing, that restoration has already begun. That descendant of Eve has already arrived. We celebrated last week that this wounded Messiah, Jesus Christ, has indeed conquered death. Not just physical death, but spiritual, relational death. And if you missed the message last week that Pastor Aaron shared, it was incredible. And you should definitely go back and watch it. But I'm going to spoil it for you right here. Here's some words from Pastor Aaron. Jesus can bring hope and renewal to this world if the church is willing to enter into its brokenness. Friends, Jesus is already at work restoring this world. He's inviting you and me to be a part of that restoration. I am so excited to continue this series and see how God over and over again continues to pursue humanity, inviting them to live differently from the world around them. Not just the right way to live. That's not what God's worried about. This is correct. Or this is the right way, the best way way, the good way, the way we were created to live. And this all leads to Jesus, the clearest picture of God. Jesus in himself is the reunion of God and humanity. I have two takeaways 
for today. If you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with this. First, God cares deeply, deeply for creation. And so should we. The world was made good, and it is still good even in its brokenness. Our mission as humans still exists alongside our mission as Christians. Care for the earth. Be stewards of God's creation. The theologian Henry Nouwen wrote, the spiritual life does not remove us from the world, but leads us deeper into it. So I ask you, how does your faith affect the way that you think about and interact with the physical world around you? I would say that following Jesus and recognizing this text as meaningful for our lives should lead us to care for the physical world around us. To not just think it's all going to fade away, but to recognize that this is important. God has made this world and called it good and tasked us with caring for it. Second takeaway, God cares deeply for you. For you. Are you hiding from God? Are you still trying to determine for yourself what is good, what is evil? Are you feeling shame or fear or guilt? Maybe it's brought on by yourself. Maybe it's brought on by others, someone else. I wanna remind you that God is the one who finds us when we're hiding. God is the one who, who asks us to trust when we're tempted to take life into our own hands. And finally, God is the one who clothes us, even in our shame, even in our fear, and even in our guilt, and communicates that he is still with us. We are still a part of this family. I wanna close with a reading from Romans 8. It says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for creating this beautiful world around us. Lord, that you have tasked us with not just enjoying, but caring for. Lord, that you have entrusted us with your good creation. Lord, I thank you that, that even when we choose to go our own way, even when we choose to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil, you draw near to us. You are not the one hiding you are the one seeking us out. So God, I pray for each of us would we learn to trust you more and more.
Lord, where we learn to recognize that you are not the father we need to be afraid of. You are the father who deeply loves us. Lord, and, and would we, would you empower us to respond to your call? to be a part of restoring this world. Lord, I thank you for your son. I thank you for Jesus. Lord, this, this descendant of Eve who is bringing restoration to this world. Lord, it is a privilege that you invite us to be a part of that restoration and that healing. Lord, would you show us how? Would you empower us in that pursuit? In Jesus' name, amen.